News, notes, and Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Swung on, high fly ball to left center should do it. There's Foster, and the 1976 World's Championship belongs to the Cincinnati Reds. In the ninth inning, the Yankees are out in order as the Reds in this fourth game in sweeping. Billy Martin's New York Yankees do it decisively, four in the ninth inning, and a 7-2 final score. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, the 4th of July. Happy Independence Day to all our American listeners. It's show number 48 of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll have our weekly talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola discussing his mid-season player values, surprises and disappointments, a mid-season experts draft he was in, and a coming Baseball HQ article about trade negotiations. In our regular Friday matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at coming matchups for Drew Hutchison of the Blue Jays and Brad Mills of Oakland, Henderson Alvarez of Miami and Marco Gonzalez of St. Louis and more. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about closers and noting there's no such thing as a sure thing. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's the 4th of July. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Nick, let's start with a batting buyer's guide column by analyst Greg Pyron at BaseballHQ.com, looking at Lima caliber reinforcements among hitters. These are hitters who are skilled, but maybe not doing as well as their owners might hope could maybe snag them in a trade or catch them off the free agent list. And one of the names on Greg's list is Arizona Diamondbacks catcher Miguel Montero. What is Greg Pyron seeing with Miguel Montero? Well, Miguel Montero has had a had a huge bounce back year after last season. Last year, hit 230, 11 home runs, 42 RBIs. Just not what anyone expected when we hoped he would have, have maybe a breakout kind of season. And that breakout is actually kind of quietly happening this year. 262 batting average at this point in the year, 11 home runs, 49 RBIs, uh, a $16 season so far, which is really good, of course, out of, out of a catcher at this point in the year. And, uh, you know, there may be enough, there may be guys out there who still are, are remembering, uh, remembering last year and expecting Miguel Montero to regress to, to what we saw last season. And there's a good chance that won't happen. Uh, here's a guy who really could put up his first 20 home run season, uh, with a batting average in the neighborhood of 260. Uh, and right now, if you double those RBIs, we're looking at a guy who's almost, almost 100 RBI season. And they've had him in the middle of the Diamondbacks lineup, so he's going to keep getting the, uh, getting the RBIs. A uh, guy you might be able to pry away from someone right now if you uh, if you make the right kind of offer. Right, and if you point out that the uh, regression of last year might, uh, or regression to last year, I guess to be more accurate, could be on the way, then maybe you can frighten somebody into thinking about it from the, that point of view. Uh, Baseball HQ is projecting Montero a little bit pessimistically, $12 value the rest of the way, nine more homers, 40 more RBIs, which would get him up around 80 or 85, and that 260 batting average, Nick, is not bad for a catcher, as you said. 
not at all, especially with that kind of power to go with it. And if you're in a keeper league, we're looking at a guy who's right now is just 30 years old. And, and as we know, uh, sometimes catchers mature a bit late. So he's probably got a couple more years left to, of, uh, of decent power given what he's showing this season. Yeah, that's an excellent point about catchers maturing late as offensive players. And uh, the theory is, and I think it's a, a good solid theory, is that it's so difficult to master the defensive aspects of catching, including being a good pitch framer, good pitch receiver, calling the game, all of that work that goes into being a solid defensive asset as a catcher kind of slows down your development as a hitter because in a way that you know, first basemen don't have to worry about all that kind of stuff so they can focus more on their hitting all the time. Uh, Stephen Nickran's starting pitcher buyer's guide column looks at sell-high candidates among starters. And I have two names I'd like to mention. The first is Miami right-hander Henderson Alvarez. Stephen points out he's been a pretty profitable guy this year for his owners, a 233 ERA and five wins. And uh, probably for a dollar or two at the end of the draft, what is Stephen Nickran seeing with Henderson Alvarez that makes him think he's a sell-high candidate? You know, right right now at this point, Henderson Alvarez looks at 233 ERA, as you said, is really, really outstanding at this point. But there's a lot of luck involved in what's going on with Henderson Alvarez. Uh, an 82% strand rate right now, a 32% hit rate. Of course, the hit rate is not is right where it should be, but that strand rate is very, very high. And an XERA of 3.55. So uh, we, we certainly see some regression going on with Henderson Alvarez. He's not likely to keep doing, I think, what he's been doing. Uh, kind of a low-dom dom right now 5.6 dom 1.8 control so he's doing it based on uh based on a very good control rate but as steven pointed out his his first pitch strike rate has been right around league average so whether he can keep that control rate at 1.8 with uh without throwing more first pitch strikes than most pitchers do uh that's that's kind of questionable swinging strike rate is not very high at eight percent so uh that dom could drop that control could go up and it could, there could be some problems with Henderson alvarez i think the rest of the way I think Henderson Alvarez makes an interesting case study for the possibility that uh, he's an extremely high ground ball pitcher, and I wonder if there's uh, pitchers like him who manage to succeed and manage not to walk guys despite not having sort of strikeout, blow them away kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, every so often a guy will pop up like this who, who can actually be pretty successful despite a, a dominance rate that's well under six, that, which is the usual standard we look for. And Do you think there's a possibility that maybe Henderson Alvarez is just one of those guys who doesn't need to strike out a lot of guys and, and doesn't need to fit that particular set of metrics to be successful? Well, you know, that's that's an interesting theory, and I think it's certainly something that would be worth uh, worth investigating. I mean, we're looking at a ground ball rate here of, of well over 50% at 55% right now, a fly ball rate of 23%. So certainly getting that kind of ground ball rate uh, would suggest that, uh, that that you're right. He doesn't have to strike out so many guys. And the other thing is maybe that strand rate, which is a little high at 82%, getting the kind of ground ball rates he's getting, if he's getting a lot of double plays and that sort of thing, uh, could be a reason for that he's stranding the runners who do get on base. So, yeah, I think there might be an interesting study there. He has historically been right around 55% uh, since his career began in 2011, uh, 55% ground ball rate, 53, 57, 55, in that kind of range. And I think you're right about the uh, strand rate being affected by pitchers who are extremely high ground ballers and also extremely low fly ballers. You mentioned that 23% fly ball rate, also pretty consistent over his career. And what that means is, even with runners on, if he's getting a very few fly balls, that means very few extra base hits, and it means, of course, very, very few home runs. And I wonder, again, if that 
strand rate is, which looks like it's something of an anomaly given the expectations we have of pitchers in general, can be somewhat misleading for a pitcher like Henderson Alvarez. Yeah, it certainly might be. I, you know, I think that's that's uh, certainly something to look at. I, uh, the, the the one concern I do have that I think Stephen pointed out is that that uh, first pitch strike rate is not very high, and so. Uh, one, one, what Stephen wondered, and I think I agree with, is can he keep his control below two walks per nine innings uh, if he's not throwing more first pitch strikes than he is? Well, in 2011, it was 1.1 for a control. He only threw 64 innings that year, but 2.6, 2.4 the last couple of years doesn't seem that great of a stretch to think he could keep that down by a, a half of a, a walk or so per nine innings. Uh, the other metrics, I find guys like this who are outliers to be really fascinating. Uh, we're projecting Alvarez to come down to earth, as you suggest. The strand rate will normalize. It has never been this high at 82%. And we're expecting a 376 ERA and, of course, that very low strikeout rate. The other Nick Rand sell-high pick was St. Louis right-hander Shelby Miller, and he was well under 3.00 ERA as late as mid-May. You remember he had a string of good starts, five straight wins, pitching great, but it might already be too late to sell him high. He's pitched in his last three games, 14 and a third innings, 13 earned runs, and 31 base runners. Assuming you could find a buyer at all, what is Stephen Nick Rand saying about selling high on Shelby Miller? Yeah, you're right. It may be it may be too late. I mean, Stephen's colleague came out early in the week, and we've we've got Miller's got more problems. And you know, the thing you've got with Shelby Miller that that he's had a he's had a very good earn run average. He's been pitching better than his xERA. Current xERA is four point six nine. Um, skills just have not been very good. Uh, lo, very relatively low DOM, six point four. Not that much better than Henderson Alvarez actually, but he's walking four and a half guys per nine innings. So uh, doesn't have the kind of control that we've seen. We saw with Henderson Alvarez a, a lower ground ball rate, a higher fly ball rate, a BPV of 13. So uh, that puts him kind of down at the, at the bottom of the stack in terms of uh, in terms of starters. So uh, he's a guy I think to be really scared of in terms of the second half and uh, certainly someone that I would try to sell high or even sell medium at this point because uh, I don't think he's going to keep going the way he's been going and things have been, uh, have been kind of going south in the last, uh, last couple of weeks, in fact. Yeah, here, here's a situation where you might be able to point back to late April through mid-May and say, you know, Shelby Miller, five straight wins. Boy, he was really terrific. He's just having a little hiccup and maybe make your pitch uh, that way if you're trying to trade Shelby Miller away. But, um, you know, if the people in your league are, are sharp at all, they're going to probably take your uh, offer with a grain of salt. Uh, and finally, Nick, uh, bullpens called him this Doug Dennis at Baseball HQ. Took a look at the unsettled closer situation in San Francisco. Sergio Romo has lost the closer role, and to judge by the fab bidding in leagues, uh, owners are betting on Santiago Casilla and Jeremy Affelt to pick up the saves in San Francisco. So what's the story in the city by the bay? Well, what Doug pointed out that is really very interesting, is that, and, then, and as he mentioned, it's just a little late for Sergio Romo to, to make his turnaround, but here's a guy that's very likely to show uh, better than he's shown so far this season. A current ERA of 5.01, uh, an expected ERA of 3.54. So we've already got a, a run and a half difference between ERA and XERA. I know there's some bad luck there. But then if you look at his projected XERA for the rest of the season, 3.08. So here's a guy who really should get better. And uh, as Stephen pointed, as uh, Dennis, uh, Doug pointed out, uh, you know, he, he just uh, just uh, hiccuped a little too soon and lost the closer role. And, now we've got Santiago Casilla. Now, Santiago Casilla is a very, very fine pitcher. I mean, if you look at uh, at a 1.15 ERA, 
that's certainly very, very good for a closer. But there's some things about Santiago Casilla. He's not quite the elite closer that uh, that you would hope. His XERA is 3.18, uh, only six strikeouts per nine innings, a BPV of 74. We like to see closers get closer to, to 100. Uh, ground ball rate is good at 57%, 26% fly ball rate. So I don't expect Santiago Casilla to have a huge hiccup. But what I do think may happen here is that as Sergio Romo gets straightened out, uh, I think the Giants are going to want to get him back into that closer role. So I think anything that's happening with Sergio Romo losing the closer role is likely to be uh, temporary. And as soon as they're certainly straightened out, uh, I think he's uh, he's likely to head back into the closer role. And uh, in terms of what Doug was looking at, uh, that would look like a decent call because he's likely to be much better over the second half than he has been in the first. Well, his base performance value this year, which is a combination of Baseball HQ metrics that look at all the skills kind of in one package, is 102, uh, 70 is around normal, and 100 is considered elite. So Sergio Romo is certainly getting the job done skills-wise. It looks like the problem might be a bit of gopheritis here. He's got a 1.7 home runs per nine. It's very high. And uh, the home run per fly ball rate of 16%, especially in that big park in San Francisco, doesn't that just scream anomaly to you? Yeah, it really does. I mean, he's certainly gotten bitten at this point by that uh, uh, by that high home run per fly rate. In fact, if you look back over his history, it's the highest we've we've seen in his career at this point. He's been closer to eight uh, percent the last last few years: eight percent, five percent, twelve percent, eight percent. So certainly some regression expected in the home run per fly rate, and that's likely very, very to bring that ERA down very quickly. I think. And his fly ball rate itself has kind of been sneaking up the last couple of years. In his dominant year in 2012, when he had a 179 ERA, a fly ball rate of only 30%. He was getting almost half the balls on the ground. That seems to have changed uh, a little bit anyway, and perhaps his reason for some caution that its ground ball rate is down from around 50 to around 40 and uh, when you start giving up more fly balls as he has, even if you can control the home run per fly ball rate, that home run rate is going to go up. So it's, uh, it's uh, a note of caution, but I'd say that if Sergio Romo stays out of the closer role for a week or 10 days, could be a terrific buying opportunity on Sergio Romo. Yeah, I think very definitely. He's a guy who looks like he's going to have a good second half. So something definitely to keep your eye on. And I'm not sure I'd be all in on Santiago Casilla at this point. And Jeremy Affelt either. Right now we have Casilla projected to get maybe one or two saves. Affelt pretty much the same. And uh, and Sergio Romo is still down on Baseball HQ's projections as a 20-plus save guy the rest of the way. Nick, thanks very much for reporting on the National League. Talk to you again in a week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com and is our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here again. And happy 4th of July to you and all our American listeners. Thank you, sir. Happy Canada Day, a little late. Yeah, three days ago, and uh, it's a big celebratory week. Lots of uh, fireworks displays, lots of ball games in the afternoons. Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, let's start in Houston, uh, Jock. There was a bit of a lineup purge. They sent Dexter Fowler to the DL. Uh, Jonathan VR got sent to AAA, and they've called up Domingo Santana and Enrique Hernandez. His nickname is Kike. You've covered a lot of this, Jock. Uh, what's going on with the Houston lineup? The Lar was uh, he was he was a victim of of both some poor defense and. Focus, which is the main reason he got sent down, uh, and he's also had some bad luck on offense. I, I think there's a good chance he returns quickly if he plays well. Um, he, um, 
Um, basically, uh, manager Bo Porter didn't like some of the mistakes he was making on defense, some of the decisions he was making on offense. And, and I covered this in our in our playing time today and tomorrow uh, segments over the last couple of weeks. Um, his hit rate was depressed. He'd actually stolen, uh, I think, 12 bases, and he'd hit five home runs. He had positive earnings. He was earning $12. Um, his contact rate's always been a problem. Um, but given that Marwin Gonzalez is the main guy at shortstop, uh, I don't know if they're going to play uh, Kike Hernandez there. Hernandez is kind of interesting because he has some versatility and he makes decent contact. But uh, I, I think uh, I think Bilar could uh, be back a little after the All-Star break. And what about the left field situation, Jock? Yeah, you know, we've absolutely flogged the Astros on their left field production for the last month at uh, Baseball HQ. We were wondering when they were going to make a change. Um, Jeff Lunau said two days before Santana was promoted that uh, Santana had a lot of development to do. Uh, he still didn't like the boom and bust uh, contact issues um, that he had. And, and we talked about George Springer's issues uh, hitting 240 at the MLB le level. Santana's another one. Um, he, he was hitting 300 at AAA, but his contact rate is below 70%, and major league pitchers are going to exploit that. He has already struck out six of seven times early in his major league career. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets sent down real quickly unless something, something different happens soon. George Springer was drafted in the second round in a midseason experts league. I was pretty surprised by that, and I'll be asking Todd Zola about it. Uh, in Tampa, Jock, Yunel Escobar, the shortstop there, was placed on the DL, probably going to be out at least till the All-Star break. Matt Dodge covered it in playing time today, so who gets the time at shortstop? Well, right now they've moved Zen, uh, Ben Zobrist over. Um, he's getting a lot of the shortstop at bat since Escobar's been out. Um, Sean Rodriguez is backing him up occasionally. Red Hot Logan Forsythe is the guy who's getting the playing time. He's coming off the bench. I think until last night when he actually sat, he had uh, double-digit hit games in six games in a row or something like that. Now, his, uh, his BPI say the production is temporary, but he has a big historical line drive rate that he hasn't put up uh, this year yet, and I, and I know that line drive rates can fluctuate. Um, my guess is, is that... Uh, that uh, his production is going to be temporary, but uh, he still has a chance. I'll bite a, a chance to do what? Is he is he stand to stay on the field even when uh, Yunel Escobar returns and they have to shift everybody back? No, I I think I don't think Yunel's going to lose his job. But don't forget, uh, uh, Logan Forsythe's pretty versatile. He doesn't have 25 qualification uh, anywhere but second base yet. But he can play third base. He can play shortstop. He can play the outfield. If he's still hitting, he could win some playing time. And uh, Tampa's pretty good at getting guys like that. Rodriguez is pretty versatile as well, play all over the field. In Minnesota, we finally saw Joe Maurer warming up, and then here he goes and strains an oblique. He's on the DL. Mike Shears covered this in playing time today. What happens to Maurer's roster spot, and who gets the at-bats at first base? Well, right about the time Maurer went down, uh, Chris Parmalee came up and, and talked about catching lightning in a bottle. He's been red hot. Um, I'm, uh, I'm not looking at what he's hitting for the last week, but overall for the year, and keep in mind this is his second go-around, he's hitting 286. Uh, he's slugging 438. Not bad numbers coming off the bench. His power numbers have always looked good, but I'm looking at a 74% contact rate and a 4% walk rate and an expected batting average of 238. Uh, the best thing Parmalee has going for him is his opportunity and the fact that he's left-handed. Um, but for now, until he stops hitting, he's going he's gonna to get a lot of Maurer's playing time. How about Kendris Morales and uh, Oswaldo Arcia? 
Yeah, they're going to fit in too. Obviously, Morales can DH and play first base. And it's funny you mention Arcia because I think as you as we both know, because we both own him, he's been in a in a huge slump. Um, his power is still huge, but he's not making contact. Um, Arcia was actually the guy who may have even lucked out uh, even more with Maurer's injury since Parmalee had already begun to play even when Maurer was healthy. And he was taking time from uh, from Arcia. So Arcia's getting a, another chance. He's doing a little better these last, last six, seven games, but he still has a ways to go. In Facts and Flukes, our performance validation feature, Dave Adler covered a guy I know you watch a lot, Albert Pujols of the Angels. Dave was not too optimistic about uh, Pujols' potential to return to his past peak performance. I also talked about Pujols with uh, Dr. HQ Rick Wilton on our show a couple of days ago, the Tuesday Tout edition. He wasn't too optimistic about Albert Pujols either. So what did Dave have to say and what are you seeing as an Angels observer? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I hadn't looked at the numbers on Pujols because I don't own him, but I but I watch him every day. And Dave clearly looked at the numbers before he wrote the column, and, and, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't get to watch him that much living on the East Coast. But Dave couldn't have been any more accurate or written this one up any better. This, w- this was just spot on, uh, just, just from my observation. And, and Dave, if you're look at, listening out there, kudos. Um, Albert's uh, basically he's not as selective as he used to be. He's chasing a lot of bad, uh, bad pitches. He's not walking like he used to. Um, and that has a lot to do with the contact, uh, that he's making. Um, it looks like his batting average has some upside if, 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 if you buy into our expected batting average, but, uh, his power is down. And, and one of the reasons I think as Dave described is his pitch selection. Uh, I think Albert is still fantasy valuable. He's still going to hit home runs, but, uh, he's certainly not the player he used to be. When I was talking about uh, Pujols with Dr. HQ Rick Wilton, uh, we both noted that Pujols seems to be uh, limping a little bit out there, and I'm wondering, have you heard anything or seen anything that leads you to believe that possibly his plantar fasciitis is acting up again? You know, we really haven't heard much about that here. The one thing that we have heard about occasionally is that his back, his back uh, uh, locks up. Um, he, may have, he may have some leg injury problems. He's had them a lot recently. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. Uh, he he doesn't run very well anymore. Um, that may be what some people are alluding to. Um, yeah, that's uh, definitely his legs aren't the best part of his game right now. And of course, as the legs go, so goes the power as well. Uh, Jock, let's move on to our lightning round, as we call it, uh, from Playing Time Today Notes. Uh, Brad Boxberger in Tampa, we talked about the possibility that he might be in the saves mix, and uh, this week he got some saves. Is this still a closer by committee? Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you figure if someone's going to do a closer by committee, particularly with Grant Balfour struggling, it's going to be Joe Madden. And I and I love the way he picked his spot for uh, for the new guy, Boxberger. He brought him in with a three-run lead against the Yankees, who aren't hitting real well anyway. And, of course, Boxberger blew them away. I think we both like Boxberger's numbers. They look real good. Um, I don't know how many saves he's going to get going forward, but he's a guy, uh, as we were talking last week, could pick up three, four saves. I was listening to a Tampa game the other night on the radio, uh, on the uh, MLB radio app, uh, and it sounded, the announcers were saying it, it's, it's, seems like a possibility that Madden wants to get Balfour back into the closer role. They, they actually trotted him out there and he did get a save, two walks, unfortunately for him, uh, might have colored their opinion of it, but uh, certainly there's a lot of uh, fluctuation going to be happening in that Tampa bullpen, I think, with uh, Oviedo now looks like the odd man out, doesn't he? 
Yeah, um, it, it's interesting. I when uh, when I saw Balfour get that save the other night, I read the comment the next day uh, from Madden, and he said, "Well, I saw Grant walking through the lobby with his uh, with his mom, and the karma looked real good, so I figured I'd use him." Um, you never know what Joe Madden's going to do, but you're right; he's got a lot of uh, of of good young arms that can miss bats. Um, so um, it's 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 really hard to project what's going to happen in Tampa. Jock Tyler Skaggs returned to the Angels rotation last week, and uh, I thought he looked pretty good. Yeah, he really did. He gave up uh, two runs in seven innings to White Sox. To the White Sox, he struck out six. I think the number five and number number four and number five spots in the LA rotation uh, with uh, Skaggs and Matt Shoemaker and Hector Santiago are going to be interesting over the second half. I watched Shoemaker get tagged around pretty good by Houston uh, early last night, but he he got a lot of strikeouts. Uh, Houston is prone to the strikeout, and there was some great defense played behind him, and he wound up giving up just two runs in six innings. I don't know how he keeps doing it, um, I, but for now, he's the number five guy with Skaggs number four. You've got Santiago waiting in the wings. Um, there, there's going to be some opportunity here, I think. In Chicago, Ronald Belisario lost the closer job, about the 17th or 18th guy they've had lose that job this year in the south side of Chicago. So now what's going on? Is it another bullpen by committee? And if so, who's the top guy? Yeah, it seems to be the order of the day. Uh, I, I'd say none of the above, unless you really want to uh, sacrifice your ERA or whip for saves. Um, there's just nothing notable here among among uh, Jake Patrika, Zach Putnam, and Javi Guerrero, or even lefty uh, Eric Surkamp. There's not a single BPV above 90 in this group, except for Belisario, of course, who just lost the job. Taiwan Walker comes off the DL for Seattle after missing the entire season so far. You looked at this, or will look at it, in playing time tomorrow. Yeah, um, he looked good. Um, he he gave up three runs uh, in in his uh, in his uh, debut back against Houston. It was a good matchup for him. Skaggs, or, I'm sorry, Walker has uh, all kinds of upside. Um, the the problem is is that he's risky. He's had shoulder woes all year. You have to wonder how the shoulder is going to hold up. Um, he displaced Erasmo Ramirez, who has simply been awful all year long. So his he, he's going to be given a shot, but uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't place all my chips on him right now. And finally, the Yankees sent down Yanjervis Solarte, who had a hot start but was kind of slumping. What's going on there? Well, as Matt Dodge pointed out in his Playing Time Today segment, uh, a 19% hit rate has really done uh, Solarte in in June. Um, it's it's resulted in a 164 batting average over 61 at, at, at bats. Interestingly enough, his contact in June was still good, 85%, 12%. Uh, walk rate, but uh, nothing's dropping. Um, he he was he only had a 13% line drive rate. And let's face it, when you don't have any speed and you don't have any power, um, you you need to be hitting the ball a little bit better than that. And it's it's one of the reasons why we thought Salarte was a utility even when he was tearing up in April and May. But uh, he should be back. Sounds like even if he does come back, there's not a lot there to be excited about, though. That's right. Uh, you, you know, he, he doesn't have any power or speed, and uh, unless he can, uh, unless he uh, unless he can really elevate his line drive rate, uh, he's going to have trouble hitting above 250. I think. All right, Jock. Thanks very much for doing this. We'll talk to you again next Friday. Okay. Thanks, PD. Jock Thompson is the director of news and analysis at BaseballHQ.com and writes several different columns for the site. He's also our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up, our regular weekly talk with Todd. We'll be back with Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun. So have more fun more often with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. One Month Games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games with the strategy and tactics of full season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week 
playing matchups and hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often, with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. This is Ron Chandler, Monthly Fantasy Baseball. More drafts, more pennant races, more fantasy fun, more often. Give it a try. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, Friday News and Notes Edition for the 4th of July. I'm Patrick Davitt. Keep your eyes open this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column looks at a trade negotiation he was in. Todd Zola has a research article looking at how teams' stolen base rates could lead to possible targets. And the minor league watch list focuses on potential closers. They're in the minors right now, but they could get called up. Plus, we have all our regular features, daily analysis of changes in playing time, performance validation in facts and flukes, our other buyer's guides, pitcher matchups, and so much more. It's all on the site now or coming up at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ChandlerPark.com, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and so many more. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. Todd, at FantasyAlarm.com, you've written some columns about first-half dollar values and fantasy rankings, and so far you've covered the hitters. I'd like to talk first about the outfield. Overall, how did outfielders do in in achieving your preseason expectations? I think the the top-tier outfielders did a fairly good job uh, producing at least something close to what was expected. You know, keeping in mind we're only halfway done. There's still going to be some movement within within the ranks. But if one invested in an outfielder, they're still, you know, eschewing position scarcity, whatever. They're probably not unhappy at this point. Most of the outfielders did pretty well as far as uh, expectations uh, versus what they actually did. And staying among the outfielders, Todd, uh, who struck you as being among the pleasant surprises? Perhaps this isn't a surprise as far as performance goes. But the number one outfielder was none other than Giancarlo Stanton. And I, I think none of us have ever questioned the skill, the, the power. But we may have had some durability issues. And personally, I had some uh, concerns about the associated production uh, playing with the, with the Marlins. He's had prolific seasons where he's had 40 home runs but in the 80s with RBIs and that's a fantasy category 5 by 5 scoring and according you know projection if you projected the Marlins to do what they've done in the past that's going to cost him some some value but the Marlins are scoring more runs than we expected and Stanton stayed healthy so he's up at number 1 so to me that you know that that's a that's a nice little surprise uh as far you know more more you know, surprises like we more think about would be someone like Michael Brantley, who a lot of us kind of liked, but realized we could get a little bit cheaper because he's kind of one of those boring, just little bit of everything, but nothing so spectacular that he's really on people's radar. But uh, he's hitting for a higher average, and his counting stats were up just a little bit, so that he fo- he propelled himself right into the top ten of outfielders. So that made me very happy because I'm very invested in in Michael Brantley. Then there's someone like Charlie Blackman, who was in sort of a, a logjam in Colorado with Corey Dickerson and Brandon Barnes and Drew Stubbs, and 
We expected a platoon. We weren't exactly sure who was going to emerge. And then the injury to Michael Kadire and, of course, Carlos Gonzalez. Blackman was the one that, at least in April, went nuts and is still living off of his April production as far as overall value goes. So his his presence in the top ten uh, was a pleasant surprise if you took the plunge and, and speculated on Blackman as being the one to emerge from the Colorado logjam. You mentioned Giancarlo Stanton. To me, the big surprise there is that he's hitting 313, which is, I think, 23 points above his previous high watermark and batting average at 290 back in 2012. Are you as surprised as I am about this batting average achievement? And more to the point, how sustainable do you think it is? Yeah, it's surprising. Um, I don't know that we he has enough of a of a sort of healthy, stable baseline to categorize him as a 250-260 hitter. I think there was still some question as to what his ultimate baseline would be. He's been he's been hurt. The team's been you know not producing, so maybe he's not seeing the best pitches. But this year, seeing better pitchers. I don't think he's a 315-313 hitter either. I think he ultimately may settle somewhere in between. But and also the old axiom, home runs are hits too. And if his power's up, those count in the batting average. And you you know you can add some points to your average that way. I agree. I think he's going to fall. I don't know what his his ultimate average may be three hundred at season's end. But I think over the second half, we're looking more of a of a two eighty in that sort of range. You know his his batting average and balls in play for a couple years, uh, three forty four, three thirteen, and this year three eighty two sort of all over the place, so not exactly sure what the man's baseline is just yet. That's true, but one thing we do know about Giancarlo Stanton is that he does hit the ball really hard, and one thing I noticed is that this year his line drive rate is back up over 20%, as it was back in 2012 when he had that 290 batting average, and do you think that Giancarlo Stanton can hold this rate. He's been down around 16, 17, 18% of line drives. Can he stay at 20, which is kind of the league average, isn't it? Yeah, twenty. I look if I see twenty, that's good. I I think the league average is a little bit below, and I think sometimes power hitters get a little bit shortchanged on line drive percent because a lot of the times when they really you know make solid contact and really square the ball up, you know they it, it's deemed a fly ball because they hit it so darn hard. Uh, so I think a little bit of it might be might be that. Uh, the other thing Stanton's done is, is he still strikes out a lot, but he has cut down a few percentage points on the strikeout rate, which which helps the batting average as well. And most of the uh, line drive increase has come by reducing ground balls. That's got to help his his batting average as well, don't you think? Yep, absolutely. Um, so yeah, he is hitting he is hitting a few more infield pop ups, which is as good as a strikeout. Uh, so you know, so that that's that's not necessarily a good thing. But um, you're right, though. The, uh, the he actually, you know, for a power hitter, his fly ball percentage is, is below forty percent. So, if he ever is, and this is difficult to do, I think anyway, when you have a poor contact rate. But if he ever is elev- able to loft the ball just a little bit more, man, this fifty homer season that we're talking about could actually come to fruition. I just get nervous when. When guys with low contact rates try to do things like loft the ball, I, did, I think it just sets themselves up for you know weaker contact, that sort of thing. A lot of times if a guy's got a very good contact rate and only needs to loft the ball for a few homers, 
I, I may put that guy down as a guy that I see getting more power in the future. Who are some of the disappointments amongst the outfielders, Todd? Um, a personal disappointment, and I, I, I think you'll turn it around, at least in my eyes, in the second half is Alex Rios, mainly because I've been championing his cause for so long. And it's not that he's doing horribly. He's just not the top 10 guy that I've been, you know, pounding the table for the past couple of years. I think he'll get there. I think he'll begin to run a little bit more and get there. A guy we talked about last week as is, is a buy low, Shinshu Chu, uh, has, has definitely been disappointing. Uh, I think even though he's been hurt, Jay Bruce, when he's been healthy, is not displaying the power that everybody's expecting for that big streak. And I'm not expecting that big white-hot streak. It might come, but I'm not planning and anticipating that it's going to come. He's had six straight months where the most home runs he's hit is four. Uh, so I, ju- I just don't see it. He's striking out too much. Uh, Curtis Granderson's a little bit of a disappointment. It's hard to say moving to the other, moving to a, the different league or back to the other league and 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 a, a, a bigger park. I still expected a little more power, but he has picked it up lately. So perhaps over the second half, Granderson can get it together. Another guy that got the reputation of being so solid. So when he doesn't do so well, it's it's kind of curious. Is Matt Holiday, and he's getting up there in age, and the team as a whole last year, as as everybody knows, hit so wonderfully with runners in scoring position, and we knew that was going to come down. But even so, Holiday is a little bit lagging his normal pace, and you get Matt Holiday for the durability and the stability and the reliability. So when he's not producing you kind of you know it's almost like a lost opportunity to take a chance at that spot it's kind of like a double whammy Uh, among your disappointments todd which guy would you target most rios well yeah but again the point he wasn't he wasn't he didn't fall horribly i mean he fell maybe to the second or third tier but yeah i i believe rios will will run a little bit more uh, his success rate has been better than it's these displayed so far, and I don't think Ron Washington is going to stop him. Power, I don't. It comes, it goes. I don't necessarily count on it, but I do think Rios will run a bit more in the second half, and that alone will be enough to to vault him back up into the range where I expect. You mentioned uh, that certain outfielders are in certain tiers. You did rank them by tiers of value. Ten outfielders in a tier. Uh, what did you notice about? achievement or overachievement or underachievement tier by tier was there any pattern it's hard to say because quite quite frankly a lot of the misses were more injury related than anything else um the outfield i mean i feel comfortable investing in an outfielder if i feel good about an outfielder i i felt comfortable investing in him for for whatever reason their their baseline maybe it's just the current crop there's not a whole ton of young kids in the outfield necessarily to take the chances on which which i've always sort of not worried about scarcity so i like it when i can invest in an outfielder and get what i need back because i'm gonna i'm taking a lower level second baseman or shortstop or something like that so it's sort of comforting to me that I can target an outfielder and feel fairly comfortable that I'm going to get back close to what I'm expecting. I've always thought in mixed leagues, fairly shallow leagues, that the the real value sweet spot is kind of that ten to fifteen dollar range because they tend to get overlooked in the early going, and then nobody has money left in the later going, and you can really get some bargains. Yeah. Now, I, I when I say that, 
I always also, draft strategy-wise, will leave two or three outfield spots and possibly my utility to pick up Michael Brantley, Marlon Bird, these sorts, these ten to twelve dollar players for three, four, five dollars in mixed leagues at the very end. Uh, I'm just not afraid to take an Alex Rios or to take uh, a top-ranked outfielder early, Carlos Gomez early, as opposed to reaching for a middle infielder or even a third baseman in today's landscape. Uh, I'm, I will. I'm not going to leave stats on the table because I'll get my middle infielder later. But as you suggest, you still want to have its opportunity cost. You still want to be able to bid on those outfielders you like at the very end. Some of the, you know, the the older players actually they're not necessarily coming through this year. Alfonso Soriano, players like that, but they always drop. Torrey Hunter's one that always drops, and he, he's doing okay. So you could have gotten Torrey Hunter as your fourth outfielder and are pretty happy with that in a mixed league. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, talking with Todd. Todd Zola from BaseballHQ.com and ChandlerPark.com, ESPN.com, FantasyAlarm.com, all over the place. Uh, Moving on to the catchers and infielders column at FantasyAlarm.com. Todd, how did the catchers do overall in meeting your preseason expectations? There was a lot of uh, transient uh, happenings within the catcher ranks. As I, as I pointed out in the column, I'm not ready yet to say it's because they're catchers. But I've definitely made a note to go back in the offseason and sort of look at this thing, look at this to see how well catchers produce compared to what was expected. And the other thing I, I need to do is, is not just use my own expectations, but sort of group that source, group source that sort of thing to take out my, individu- my, my personal bias. But do catchers in general seem to have more surprises slash disappointments within the top ranks than the other positions, or is it simply the first half of 2014? But so far in, in 2014, the the top guys have really disappointed, and there's been some, some nice guys that have snuck in and, and, and have their, given their owners a huge edge, especially in those one-catcher leagues. And who have been the pleasant surprises among catchers this year? Well, I think topping that list is Devin Mesoraco, and what's even more surprising as it were was he missed a, a good chunk of, good chunk of time with, with injury uh, coming into the season I think we we might forget that he he actually didn't even make their their playoff roster the Reds playoff roster last year that's how down on him they were and <coughs> excuse me and he, we've always known he had power so when he came and when he played and he sort of was lower in the order, hit a home run, kept hitting home runs, and has now been moved up into the cleanup spot at times. And when healthy, he's now the Reds' full-time catcher, and he's just hitting—he's just hitting the ball really hard and really far a lot. Uh, what I don't know that he'll keep this pace up, but the fact that he's going to get regular playing time, which early in the season we weren't sure about, is enough to expect top ten production going forward, even if the pace slows down. Uh, Norris of of Oakland is just, as I we continue to call him, the, the human stratomatic team is just taking his side of the platoon and is just putting great situations to succeed and is hitting, you know, even though he's not playing as much as some of the regular catchers, is just doing his job and running a little bit too, which we, we sometimes forget about from catchers. And the other guy, and to me, this is kind of a, I don't know justification or confirmation that our methods are our our methods work. Is it's nice? <coughs> excuse me. It's nice to see Miguel Montero 
have some batting average luck for a change. He's had some bad luck for a couple of years. So he was on a lot of lists of, of players that are going to have a better season, you know, whose skills were still pretty solid, but the outcomes weren't really representative. It's kind of nice that the outcomes are now more representative and, and justify some of the methods that we preach in the offseason. And we talked about Miguel Montero earlier with uh, Harold Nichols in the National League Market Watch report. Uh, finally, Todd, uh, how about among the... In- I'm geez, sorry, I buggered this up. And who are some of the disappointments behind the plate? Well, you might as well start right at the top and go with Joe Maurer, Buster Posey, Yadier Molina. Uh, Carlos Santana is, is turning on of late, so we'll put him in sort of the... Uh, Parentheses as far as disappointments go, but Mauer's not—he's now hurt. So who's to say, you know, when he's how we'll have over the second half? But Mauer is is not showing any power at all, even though he's playing first base. Now, granted, we're all using him at catcher, but we were sort of hoping the full-time move to the catch uh, out of the catcher position might help keep him a little fresher and increase the power just a bit. Buster Posey, it's not he's not as if he's having a terrible season. He's just sort of on the lower end of an expected uh, production outcome sort of curve. A couple of years ago, MVP, he was on the upper end of it. So he's a guy I do expect to have a, a better second half. You know, the question, as alluded to before, is it worth investing what it takes to get a Buster Posey uh, or are catchers more prone to this sort of variance? And my personal disappointment was Yadier Molina because I did have him ranked as my top catcher. Uh, he sort of slow, not so much slowly, but he grew into, you know, he used to be all glove, and he grew into being one of the better hitters in the league, and he's just kind of falling in the St. Louis Cardinal team mantra of just as a team batting, they're just not having as, as good a year as they did last year. Powers waned. The production's waning, even the batting average. You know, he line drive machine. It's down a bit. I do expect that he'll bounce back too over the second half. And both of the, all three of these guys, well, Mauer's hurt. Posey and Molina should be back in the top ten over the second half. And finally, Todd, you, you also covered the infielders in that same column with the catchers. What did you see about their ability to attain preseason value? It was sort. Of, it was variable. Uh, first baseman and third baseman. Seemed to hold it. Third baseman held it very well, uh, which now you know. Now when you combine that with the outfielders, now do you, is it more of the type of hitters that they are, more power production type hitters versus the middle infield, where their rotisserie value might be dependent upon some steals, uh, you know, in more in a more stressful defensive position. So, you know, intuitively or anecdotally, there might be something to this. Uh, sort of, you know, is it year by year that these players hold their their value, which, you know, we could be talking about this come next spring as far as draft strategy goes. Once I, you know, once I'm able to pound the numbers out a little bit more uh detailed. But yeah, the first baseman and third baseman seem to hold their hold their stead, at least at the top of the crowd, pretty well. But of course there's surprises in all the positions. Well let's talk about some of those pleasant surprises amongst the infielders. Who who did you spot? Well, uh, Adam LaRoche of Washington is just uh, really uh, good to see hitting for an average. Of course, that's probably going to come down. Hitting for some power as well. Uh, now, the curious part with LaRoche is once Zimmerman, Ryan Zimmerman's now moved back to third, once they realize or remember he still can't throw, 
first base is the most logical destination for Ryan Zimmerman long term. So will Washington get rid of LaRoche, trade LaRoche, open up the spot for Zimmerman? You know, what will they do at that point? So if I'm a LaRoche owner, although I don't know that he's going to go to a worse hitting park, Washington is, is not the best hitting park. So as far as that goes, I'm not all that worried about it. And if he does get traded, you would think it's to a contender that will score some runs. And LaRoche has been traded, you know, twice in season before, a couple of years ago, went from the Red Sox in Atlanta really quickly. And so he's shown that he can adjust on the fly to different teams. Uh, Jose Altuve was a, a pleasant surprise. Now, those of you that attended the spring first pitch forum tours heard me talk about Altuve and say, if you want speed out of the middle, he's your only option. And I know a few people actually have written me and said they got him just because of that, and I got him just because of that, and we're all very happy right now. I don't think he'll sustain the batting average, but I think Houston's going to keep running, so he should continue to steal at a pretty lofty pace. And, and speaking of which, D. Gordon, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year, we weren't sure how much he'd play if 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 uh, the Guerrero would come up and and play and take the spot from him. But now he, of course, has the unfortunate uh, suffering from bite-like symptoms and might not be able to play. Uh, so Gordon seems to have that spot locked down, even though he's slid batting average-wise a little bit. One of the biggest surprises and the leading vo- the leading vote-getter, the leading earner at third base is Todd Frazier, even, even higher than Miguel Cabrera. Frazier's running, which... He's always had the ability to do, but previous management didn't let him, so to speak. And the current new Brian Price seems to letting their guys run pretty much wild. And, and Frazier's successful, and he's the power strokes back, and he's hitting second in the lineup now, so he's getting even more at bat. So uh, Todd Frazier, to me, if someone's looking to sell high, uh, sure, he's going to come down. But he's a guy I'm willing to invest in in the second half. I don't think he's going to come crashing down. Uh, Lonnie Chisenhall, on the other hand, may crash a little bit more. You have to be, you know, extremely ecstatic what he's done so far. Uh, you know, recall beginning of the year, he was—he almost didn't even make the team because Carlos Santana was the third baseman. But in the limited times he got, Chisenhall took advantage, and at the very, you know, right now he's in the good side of the platoon. Uh, so I think he, he will continue. Actually, he's not on the good side of the platoon, but he, you know, he if he continues to hit, he should see his spot in the lineup. But I just don't know that he's going to continue at that pace. And I think it's nice to see Starlin Castro bounce back a little bit. And uh, I'll see this Escobar. Is, is, uh, I don't know if he's a huge surprise, but he's scoring runs. He's getting for a good average and stealing some bases and kind of piggybacking on the Royals scoring a few more runs than than maybe we thought they would. I think Frazier is an interesting story. I, I'm, I've seen him uh, sort of get in that 12, 13% home run per fly ball rate. It's all the way up to 18 this year, which has me a bit worried. But what's more interesting is what you mentioned, I think, about the stolen base situation. In the last three years, from 11 through 13, with Dusty Baker managing the club, uh, Frazier only had 5 to 9% stolen base opportunities. That is, 5 to 9% of the time when there was an open base for him to steal, they let him go. 20% this year. And so it just really goes to show you how influential the manager's policy or theories or philosophy about running on the bases can be to the benefit of a player who's really only a league average speed guy. Right. And, and yeah, exactly. And, uh, 
you know, we'll, we'll, we did a piece on that and we'll talk about that in the future for, for baseball HQ. But we just, you know, one reason why I expect Frazier to continue to run is Cincinnati in general is running. I'm not all that high on Jay Bruce, as I mentioned, but he is sneaking in some steals and will likely continue to do so, which will, at least from a fantasy value wise, helping from being a complete bust. But if, if, if I own a Cincinnati Red, and well, of course, you know, the ultimate Billy Hamilton will, you know, will run. But sometimes I think running's contagious too, and it's a mindset. And if, if Hamilton's running, you know, let alone being on the back end of a double steal, but if Hamilton's running and, and successful, I think it kind of spreads throughout the team, uh, and, and that might help guys like Frazier and Bruce, you know, keep their stolen base totals a little bit higher. Now, the whole, you know, you mentioned the home run per fly ball. Yeah, 18 is higher than 12, and it's going to come down, but it's not, you know, again, it's in the upper level of, of a kind of an expected performance. If it was 8%, you know, we'd be concerned, but we wouldn't be, you know, it's just we would just be saying it's going to, you know, do for a little bit of an uptick. So I, I think, you know, I do agree 18% is coming down. Now this could be balanced by hitting higher up in the order too. So he may not lose as many home runs as if he was hitting 6th or 7th. Because he's getting more at bats. So also, has that? Have you ever looked into the park effect insofar as home run per fly ball is concerned? Is eighteen percent perhaps a little more understandable at the high end of the range because of the fact that he plays in a bandbox? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 not park adjusted. Uh, you know, in, in just different swings are catered to different parks. I haven't put Frazier under the microscope, so to speak. I mean, a few years ago, uh, Chase Headley, during his big year in Petco, he's a switch hitter, and it was amazing. From both sides of the plate, hit home runs down the line. It was just in the shorter part of the park, and that we just felt that was unsustainable and it sort of proved to be right. Uh, I haven't looked to see what Frazier's doing. Is he hitting no-doubters? Is he, you know, are they, are they just barely home runs as the... ESPN home run tracker likes to label them or or what, but yeah, I would I would you know a little a little bit of a give back. We're not at the point yet. We talk about when skills stabilize. We're not at the point yet where home run for fly ball can be considered real. So if you own Frazier, I would expect a slight give back as far as power goes. And just returning briefly to Adam LaRoche, you know this is a a player that I don't think quite gets his due in a lot of leagues when you go into your draft situation because he's just you know a guy but when you look at his track record in baseball since he came up in 2004 to start playing somewhat regularly he's been very consistent with kind of mid-20s home run peaking in the low 30s mid-80s rbis peaking at 100 and it's very unusual for him not to have that kind of level of production. Now, the batting average this year of 302, I think, is a bit of an eye-opener because it's usually more like sort of ranges from 240 to 270, and that probably is not sustainable given the fact that his hit rate is way up at 35% or 350 BABIP, if you prefer to look at it that way. But Adam LaRoche has been for real for a long time, and it seems like he's for real again this year. Yeah, now he's one of those players that everybody thinks that the first and second half performance is just completely different. And, you know, one year he'll have a great first half and he's a first half player, and the next year he has a great second half and he's suddenly now a second half player, uh, which just goes to show or, or sort of is an example of the fact that there really isn't 
such thing. It's, it's just happenstance. But he got the reputation of being a, a split-type player. And those guys, they... You sort of, in general, down. You don't look at the C. You don't look at the the twenty to twenty five that you mentioned. You just don't want to have them for the bad half. So I think sometimes that gets into people's head and he gets downplayed a little bit because of that. But you know, he started out, you know, on fire this year, and his K percent is down. So even though his BABIP's up a bit, when it does settle. I suspect that his batting average, while he's not a 300 hitter, I mean, he hit 237 last year, 271 year before. You know, we could see 280 the rest of the way. We could see 275 the rest of the way, which is still pretty darn good. And he's walking a ton, even more. He's always been a, a 10% or more, which is what we look for for OBP. Uh, he's up close to 16% now as far as walk percent. So he's, he's walking a bit more as well which, again, bodes well for is he swinging good pitches, he's being selective, which could keep the, the power numbers up and, and keep hitting the ball hard. And I think the opportunity here might be something you mentioned earlier, that a lot of people in leagues around uh, fantasy baseball think of Adam LaRoche as a one-half guy. And if the Adam LaRoche owner in your league thinks he's a one-half guy and he's had his half, he might be willing to think he's selling high, and I think this might be one of those things we call a buy-high opportunity on Adam LaRoche. Uh, how about any disappointments among the infielders that you noted, Todd? Well, I think the the biggie, well, there's two biggies, and injuries have played a part, but even so, performance-wise, uh, both Chris Davis and Joey Votto, when, when healthy, have not lived up to expectations. There was some, you know, murmurings, anecdotal talk in the spring that Votto would indeed change his approach and go to hit guys in and not take the walks with runners on, and, and he may have done that for one game, but you know, in, in, as far as regular baseball goes, I think he's doing the right thing by taking walks. But from a fantasy perspective, he's not getting the runs and he's not hitting the power and he's not running anymore. So, and I, I he's not as much of a disappointment for me because I kind of had him in the disappointment in general. Uh, but I did expect Chris Davis, when healthy, to perform better than he's doing. I didn't expect 50 homers. But I think people that are calling, you know, one-year wonder sort of thing, the man did hit 33 the year before, or 35, somewhere in that range. He had a pretty good year in 2012. I think 2012 is more his baseline than 2013. But to say that it was a one-year wonder, I think, is, is not giving him enough credit. So, I, you know, looking at Davis's skills, they're pretty close to what they were in 2012 so I wouldn't be surprised if he sort of mimics that in the second half 15 16 homers going forward assuming he's healthy which is a bit of a question right now so Davis is a guy you know there's going to be a batting average risk but if I need power uh, and his owner is a little frustrated he's a guy I would target as opposed to Vada who I'm not touching Cano, I don't know if you can call a disappointment in that he's you know going to maybe win his first batting title but even the even reduced power that was expected, he's still not even hitting for the 20 to 22 homers that we thought he'd get out of coming out of uh, New York going to Seattle. So at least from a power perspective, Cano's a little disappointing. Uh, Dustin Pedroia is just a you know big question mark. I mean, it's great he plays through all these little nicks and, and and bumps and bruises, and you know he's a gamer and and all that sort of stuff. But from a fantasy owner. You know, you, you you knew you weren't going to get, you know, 30-30, thirty, 
But you were hoping for teen steals, teen homers, and some really good production in his normal 300 batting average. He's not even hitting for average. And if Dustin Pedroia is not hitting for batting average, he's just another guy. And so I think that, you know, and, and I'm not sure that the bounce back is in. He might have a streak where he gets the average up, but I don't see the counting stats coming up to what where is it, what's expected. And, you know, and I little, he's going to be tough, a tough call for me next year. As far as what to expect from Pedroia, I have a feeling that I'm going to have him a little bit lower than than people that might be expecting a bounce back. And at least from a speed and, and general perspective, I expected a little more from Everett Cabrera. I thought that uh, a lot of those numbers were real. I expected, I actually expected. I'm not going to say, you know, a ton of homers, but I thought he may get eight or nine, and he still might because he does have three. But uh, he's been a, a bit of a disappointment for me as far as steals and overall overall play. Going back to Votto for a second, you said you're uh, not optimistic about his bounce-back potential for fantasy purposes. I agree with you. I think he's doing exactly the right thing in a real baseball sense by drawing walks. If you get on base, you can score runs, and he's certainly uh, proved that he can do that over the years. But here's what has me worried about Votto, not only for the rest of this year, but maybe uh, for the rest of his career – it, and it is that his hard contact index, which is a combination of how off, how often he hits the ball and how often he hits it hard. And in 2011, it was up in the high 130s, which is 30%, almost 40% above league average. This year so far, 107, which means he's barely above league average at hitting the ball hard. His contact rate has stayed very stable, which means it's all down to hardness of the hit balls. And that, to me, is a sign of some concern because it seems to indicate that whatever power he developed in his MVP year and the years around it, when he was in the 30s, uh, high 20s, low 30s, mid 30s, is gone and may never come back. Or it could be an injury in the trunk, leg leg or trunk reason. that could be just something throwing off the swing mechanics just a little bit. But I, you know, to me, you know, also back, which these are all could be chronic. So long-term, I do share your concerns. And uh, I'll just point out that hard contact index in 2011 was, as I said, his career best, 137. And in the years since, down to 134 in 2012, 121 last year, 107 this year. So it's a, it's a steady decline. And if it's injury-related, a steady decline of injury-related nature seems to indicate a problem with an injury that may be chronic. Um, when are you going to have the pitchers out, Todd? I will have the pitchers out sometime over the weekend, um, taking advantage of a of a day off to update my playing time and update my projections. I will I will run out the pitchers over the weekend for fantasy alarm. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, talking with Todd. Uh, I'm Patrick Davitt, talking with Todd Zola. And Todd, uh, at KFFL.com, another place you post frequently, you participated recently in a 10-team mid-season mock draft, and uh, things looked pretty close to chalk uh, expectations in the first round, with a couple of exceptions. How surprised were you that Troy Tulowitzki and Jose Altuve went in the first round, the people choosing them seeming not to be worried about any kind of fall-off in the second half? Tulowitzki, I we, we've talked a bit about this as far as how do you handle projections and playing time going forward for injury-prone players. The you know selecting Tulo just says that he's taken half the year, hasn't gotten hurt. Colorado is giving him a few days off to keep him fresh, and none of the injuries he seems to get are the chronic 
pulling the hamstring every year sort of variety. So I think it's a decent gamble that Tulowitzki can stay healthy. Uh, and he's shown, you know, he's an MVP when he's healthy. I don't know that I would have, if, if we were actually playing league out, I don't know that I would have taken Tulowitzki. It's sort of a, I don't want to say do or die pick in the first round because a lot can still happen. But if he does get hurt, you have a lot less of the season with which to backfill and replace and make up for it. Not to mention, if we're talking practical, you know, realistic here, the available players to backfill are not as of the good quality that they may have been, say he got hurt in April or May. Altuve, I don't know that I was as surprised that he was taken, but quite frank that it was our friend Peter Kreutzer who was the one that took him. I think a lot of people see, you know, good things, but I don't think we can sustain or I don't think he can sustain the 330 batting average, as we mentioned before. So I do see a lot of give back. And Peter, oh, maybe maybe he's he's doing what I should be doing and taking a few more chances and looking at second half and, and realizing it, it might be sustainable, uh, looking at the batting average in depth, and maybe I'm wrong and the 330 is not coming down. So I was a little more surprised that it was Peter that took the plunge than Altuve was taken, quite frankly. I, I think I mentioned this. I talked to some people about the draft on the radio series XM and I was looking at Altuve in my second pick if uh, if he had made it I think I had decided I wasn't going to take him but I was at least considering him if he made it to me I was pretty surprised to see that George Springer of Houston went pretty high in the second round number 24 overall or number 14 overall how surprised were you the fact that it was my my partner and our friend Lar Michaels I wasn't surprised because that's just what Lar does Lar doesn't worry about anything about and Lar, you know, Lar thinks the guy can hit and he took him. I not saying Lar was wrong or he's not going to do it. I wouldn't have made that move. Uh, Springer has actually run a little bit lately. He got two stolen bases this week, so that is a good thing. I I do see the power falling, but the big thing, and to me, you know, this is just different ways of looking at things. Team construction. He's not going to hit for the batting average necessary for me to take him in the first and second round. It's awful hard. I don't care how many counting stats you get. And I don't want necessarily a 330 hitter either. But it's awful hard to compete in batting average when you've got, you know, a 240, 250 base out of your second best hitter. Again, I'm not necessarily, you know, I'm taking a Carlos Gomez who I'm expecting a 270 or 280 from. I don't necessarily need Miguel Cabrera hitting 320. But... You know, I don't know that you almost have to dump batting average. And people have won leagues doing that, but I'm not willing to do that without having to do it, which is my main thing with Springer, is the counting stats just aren't there for me to overlook the potential of a 240 batting average. And I know some people look at him and they say, geez, he's drawn uh, more than 10% walks, which is pretty nice. But the problem here clearly is going to be contact rate. He's striking out about 38% of the time. And it's, well, let's face it, it's impossible to have a decent batting average when you're swinging uh, and missing and going down for the count uh, 38 times out of 100. It's it, You just can't get enough hits to overcome that. Right. You know, I mean, we all... Saw the highlight of that ball he hit the other night that the the sound it made reverberating inside the closed dome was just fantastic. So, you know, when he hits the ball, he hits it hard. And he's athletic, as he's shown by some of the defensive plays. And like I said, he's running. I think going forward, we may see a 250-260 hitter with, you know, 20-20, if not 30-30 potential. Although, I don't know about 30 steals. So, I think he's going to be one of those guys that fills up your stat sheet 
going forward. Kind of a, a rich man's Mike Cameron, if we sure. remember Mike Cameron from several sure. years ago. Uh, but not, not at least for me, not in the second round, not when there's still other quality players on the board. Uh, Springer was a little too rich for my blood at that point. Well, you mentioned that he, Springer has been running more lately in the last week. His stolen base opportunity rate is up to 33%. Now, that's a very small sample. It's a handful of at-bats, of course. We know that. But is there a possibility that Houston is finally realizing, hey, we, we are not a competitive team. Let's let this guy run around and get people excited and bring, give him a reason to buy a ticket? Yeah, and it also could just be that he didn't feel comfortable. He wasn't you know, getting the lead that he'd like to normally get or... You wanted to see some of the pitchers and see their moves the first time through, and who knows what kind of coaching he's getting. You know, he's he's, he's got to just get used to the. You know, I'm sure he's being interviewed after every game, and you know, just because of the nature of the rookie and how well he's playing, maybe now things have settled down a little bit, and it's back to baseball again. I don't, you know, I don't think he's a you know a thirty stolen base sort of guy, but he does have you know some pretty decent speed that, you know, he could get teen steals over the course of a season, if not low 20s. So I think there's definitely something to that. Now, whether Houston lets their showcase player run wild or not, you know, with the injury potential, I don't know about that because they, you know, they, they are one of the more savvy front offices as far as sabermetric, uh, you know, and that sort of thing goes. I don't know that they'll necessarily let him run wild, but I do think organically he's going to have more opportunities to display the speed that he does have. Well, in the minor leagues, in in 012, he stole more than 30 bases. Last year, he stole more than 45 at AA and AAA combined. It it certainly seems that if if you're looking at it from the point of view of helping your team win games, moving him along from first to second by the stolen base, especially given such an anemic general offense, isn't such a bad idea. And and I understand the, that there is some injury risk associated with stolen bases. But boy, I sure hope they let him run. Anyway, it's exciting. Oh, absolutely. And I think and I, I think they will. I just don't think that they'll you know give him carte blanche to run whatever they want. You know, Altuve seems to have that, which is great. I think you know I think they'll give you know they'll give him the steal signal, the steal sign, uh, quite often. I just don't think they're going to let him on his own whenever he's on you know run if he wants like a like a Rajay Davis you know that they don't you know he doesn't even look for signs you know he just he just goes in your discussion of uh, the second round pick of Billy Hamilton you made an interesting observation about roster construction and particularly how one-dimensional players get valued in a lot of fantasy drafts and auctions yeah it's one of those it's one of the age-old you know everybody thinks that those of us that do values overvalue steals and when we put out raw numbers as far as values go and I don't feel that we do I feel the value is accurate I feel it's more of a draft strategy game theory process where you actually rank and design your draft list a a cheat sheet should not be an ordered value list that's not how to prepare your draft list and Hamilton's sort of the 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 reason why one trick ponies are often devalued by the market. I like to use the example a few years ago of when Ichiro and Adam Dunn were at their peak. You could get them both at a discount. Ichiro was supplying batting averages of steals and you know, a couple of homers and Dunn, you know, hitting 40 home runs every single year but putting that batting, you know, putting your batting average at risk. You can combine the two of them and if you then took the sort of average player out of both, you maybe got 
I don't know, $50 worth of rotisserie value, but you may have only had to pay 40 because individually they were both discounted. That sort of thing occurs. Now, Hamilton has that hype tax associated with him, so he might not be the best example of someone to look at as far as, because I think people just want to own Billy Hamilton. But you can often get a, a speed merchant a little bit cheaper, and then a, you know Josh Willingham, a, a power guy, uh, that's not going to run unless he's in the back end of a double steal and and you know is being you know airlifted to the next base. And it, you can sort of at the end of the day have the stats that you need and get all the pieces at a discount so that the whole you're getting you know a bigger bang for the buck than if you just got you know all around players throughout the whole thing. Now we can talk about the injury risk. You know, what if one of the guys gets hurt? And, but you know, if if an all-around player gets hurt, you're hurting all your categories. And at the end of the day, it depends on where you are within that category anyway. So it's all sort of speculation to begin with. But the whole argument about you know, if, if my stolen base guy gets hurt, you know, I'm in trouble. As opposed to if Alex Rios gets hurt and I'm hurt just a little bit everywhere, I think you're hurt equally for both because you lose the same amount of points they're just distributed right. differently that's exactly right and uh as you said it also depends on where you are in the categories when the guy gets hurt sometimes you you could lose chris davis or you could lose uh adam dunn or whoever your big bopper is and if you already had a 25 home run lead it doesn't matter it's like trading him away you would you'd actively seek to do that if you were f- very high in first place or very low in last place of course you know uh, that the, there are a lot of factors that go into how much you get hurt by anything that goes on in real baseball and, and Todd finally at, here at baseballhq.com you're preparing an article based on trade negotiations you made up a league for six or seven of us and then the, the rest are filled in by just team A team B type things uh, what were you designing in that article how's it going have you seen any surprises so far it's something i've done before with a different i I will say more eclectic group which might which might be part of what i write about uh because we're using a lot of baseball hq people who have a lot of the same philosophies and mindsets which i think is part of the part of the whole exercise but trade fast trade talks fascinate me in that I'm always interested in the opening salvo. I'm interested in the tone of the negotiation. Is it light? Is it all business? And then I'm interested in the close. Uh, you know, is it just here's an offer, I'll take it, or does does someone always have to make you accept their offer, even if it's just saying I'll do it, but I need to switch reserve spots or throw me some fab or something. So what we've done is we've tasked six or seven of us to make at least one trade within the group and I'm going to post the uh, the actual negotiation and then give my own interpretation you know this is well notice this person you know kept it light throughout the whole thing and and look at the accept look at the deal they made where this person you know was very was very technical and look at the extended negotiations it took them seven email exchanges whereas it took this group two and you know in, in depth with the deal uh, so that that's sort of the goal is to sort of examine the different ways to approach a deal, how the, the tactics within it, and then at the very you know how how good of a closer are you, so to speak. And you and I had a deal brewing. I'm not exactly sure. Did we consummate that deal? I don't want to spoil it by saying who's involved, but I'm okay with it if you are. Yeah, we yeah for the uh, as we discuss, you know, and it will be part of the actual narrative. Because it, I think it has. To, I think it's important. 
But we both we both came down to the very end, and we were both tasked tasked with making a deal. And I don't think it's a bad deal, but I'm not sure that either one of us would have done it had we not sort of felt responsibility to fill our obligation to do so. Again, it's not a bad deal for either side, but I think we both may have looked to do something a little bit different had we, you know, had it been a real league, which I think is. Again, part of the lesson is 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 is, is, is that's that can be easily constructed or worked, weaved into the narrative. I agree, and uh, I have to say, I think I would do a deal like it or that exact deal most of the time, based on the, how I uh, how I had calculated where the standings were going to end up. Todd, thanks a million for joining us again. Uh, you'll be joining us again on Tuesday for the Baseball HQ Radio Midseason Awards Roundtable. I'm looking forward to that. One of my uh, one of my favorite days of the year. It's always a great to get together with all the guys and and talk about performances and, and that sort of thing. All right, Todd, thanks again. We'll talk to you then and again next Friday. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, KFFL, Fantasy Alarm, ESPN, and other sites. And, of course, he's our regular Talk with Todd commentator on Fridays here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our regular Baseball HQ commentaries are next. The matchups report and master notes coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Down in the Cincinnati locker room with Johnny Vance. Johnny, congratulations on that terrific performance. Oh, it's been so long, and I, gosh, I can't, I can't tell you. It's just, it's been a rough year, and I just tickled, tickled to death. I, two home runs, Johnny. Which one did you hammer the hardest? The first one. Oh, the second one. I really second. hit hard. I, <laughs> You know, I was looking to drive the last guy and just hit the ball hard somewhere. And I, I can't imagine. I, I really, really, in all my years, this is the greatest thrill I've probably ever had. To you were voted the most valuable player, and John, you really deserved it. I'll tell you. Thank you. I, well, you know, when you play with these guys and they've done the job all year, and then you're able to do something just to, you know, to make up for everything you haven't done all year, it's just. It's just, you know, a great inspiration for me and a great feel. I, I'm just John, so not only are you a great athlete, but let me say that you set such a marvelous example for everyone who follows the game of baseball. As someone in the media who's had to deal with all kinds of athletes, there's no one finer than Johnny Bench. Thank you. All right, Johnny, congratulations. And right now our post-game show will continue in one minute. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Happy 4th of July. Time for our regular Friday commentaries. I'm on deck with Master Notes, but we'll lead off the inning with our matchup segment. Remember our Baseball HQ matchup ratings look at every starting pitcher matchup by pitcher skills and recent performance, as well as the strength of the opposing team. We arrive at a matchup rating from plus 5 to minus 5. We recommend pitchers who have matchup ratings of 2.0 or higher, while we warn against pitchers with ratings of 0 or worse. Everything in between, well, that's a risk versus benefit play that you'll have to assess in the context of your team and your league. Now looking at coming matchups for Drew Hutchison of Toronto facing Brad Mills in Oakland, Henderson Alvarez of Miami in St. Louis to face Marco Gonzalez, and more weekend matchups. Here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. It's the 4th of July weekend and ballparks across the USA will have fireworks displays for their fans, some in more ways than one. Let's use the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool to see which games might light up the scoreboards as well as the skies. The biggest show should be in Oakland on Sunday. A's lefty Brad Mills has the most combustible matchup rating of the weekend, a minus 313. He faces the Toronto Blue Jays, who have the third best offense in the majors. Fresh off their celebration of Canada Day July 1st, 
The Jays counter with right-hander Drew Hutchison. His matchup rating is 092. And Hutchison goes up against the most prolific offense in the majors. The A's are the only team averaging more than five runs per game. It's a volatile combination with two of the top three offenses facing off and their two pitchers' matchup ratings combining for a minus 221. The total runs scored in this display could easily reach double digits. There is one other matchup where the two pitchers' matchup ratings combine for a negative total, and it's in the National League on Sunday. St. Louis Cardinals rookie left-hander Marco Gonzalez makes his home debut with a matchup rating of minus 1-0. Gonzalez was torched for 10 earned runs in nine innings during his first two starts. His opponent is Miami Marlins righty Henderson Alvarez, who brings in a matchup rating of only 0-66. The Marlins have the third-best offense in the National League, but they are eight games under 500 on the road. The unusually anemic Cardinals score more runs per game than only one team, and that's the San Diego Padres. This show may not have bombs bursting in air, but fans should still see something more than they would watching neighborhood kids with sparklers. On Saturday in Anaheim, Astros righty Scott Feldman visits with the third worst matchup rating of the weekend, a minus 058. He goes up against Angels lefty Hector Santiago. Santiago's matchup rating is 105, and his woes have improved little since we listed them last week. Only three teams have worse road records than Houston, and the Astros allow the fifth most runs per game. Meanwhile, the Angels score the second most runs per game, and they have the best home record in the majors. That's an explosive formula that should result in a heavenly display of offensive fireworks. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. If your league rules or format let you take advantage of pitcher streaming or matchups, you need to check out daily matchups reports at BaseballHQ.com as well as the exclusive Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups tool. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I want to talk about closers. And with closers, there's no such thing as a sure thing. One of these years, I'm going to guess right on how to play the closer Wheel of Fortune, except I'm not really sure there is a right way to play that game. In my years in Tau Or's Mixed League Auction, I've tried a few different closer strategies. The first couple of years, I focused on guessing in March which closers would fail by May and be replaced. The idea worked okay in a limited way, but I didn't get a ton of points in the saves category because it was very tough to get right both pieces of the puzzle who's going to be out, and who's going to be next. In 2013 tout, for example, I bought Luke Gregerson, thinking Houston Street would be hurt at some point. I bought David Robertson for a dollar as a long-shot gamble that Mariano Rivera, who was entering his final season, wouldn't get through it at age 126. And I bought Yunichi Tazawa because I was certain that Andrew Bailey would either stink, get hurt, or probably both. For various reasons, these plays didn't pan out. Street turned out to be okay. Rivera was his usual indestructible self. And while Bailey stank out the joint right on schedule, turns out I had the wrong Japanese bullpen replacement. So I turned to phase B of my master strategy, trolling the free agent pool for potential closers, based on news reports, rumors, and my own keen intuition. I fabbed Brett Myers, Joaquin Benoit, Mark Melanson, Stephen Pryor, Jared Burton, Carter Capps, Ryan Cook, Sean Doolittle, 
Koji Uehara, Darren O'Day, Sean Doolittle again, Tony Watson, Kelvin Herrera, and Jake McGee. Some of these guys actually got me some saves. Benoit turned out to be a real scoop, getting me 22 saves, and Melanson got me 15. Doolittle got a couple, O'Day got one, and Trevor Rosenthal, whom I acquired late in the year via trade, got me three. But you must be asking yourself, what about Uehara? Signing him was a stroke of genius. He got 21 saves for the Red Sox. How many of them did he get for you? Uh, one. I had perspicaciously fabbed him for a buck on May 13. But somewhat less perspicaciously, I released him a week later, when some other bright, shiny object, O'Day, caught my eye. In all my machinations earned my squad 47 saves, which sounds okay, I guess, except that it was only good for one point in the category because I was 20-plus saves behind the guy in second last. So this year in tout, I made a major strategic shift. I resolved to put saves in my budget, and I spent a total of $32 on three closers who were certain, certain, I tell you, to get me into the upper reaches of the saves category. I didn't think I could miss with such stalwarts as Casey Jansen of the Blue Jays, Bobby Parnell of the Mets, and Jim Johnson of the A's. Turns out it's pretty easy to blow that play. Jansen got DL'd and didn't pitch till May. Parnell pitched exactly once on March 31st, blew that save, went straight to the DL, had Tommy John surgery, and was out for the year before the season was barely a week old. And what can I say about Jim Johnson? Of course, he couldn't miss, right? I had rostered him in another league for the two previous seasons, two straight seasons of glorious category-winning 50 saves. And he was moving to the Oakland A's, a winning franchise. And of course, the rest is baseball history, much in the same way that the Yugo made automotive history and the watermelon-flavored Oreo made cookie history. In his first game, Johnson came in in the top of the ninth, a scoreless tie. He gave up two hits, a walk, and two runs, both earned and he got exactly one out. Three of his next four appearances were in save situations. He gave up six more hits, five more walks, and five more runs, all earned. He blew all those saves and lost the closer role temporarily. When Sean Doolittle turned out to be kind of good, and Johnson continued to allow runs at a remarkable pace, he was relegated to mopping up in games that were safely out of hand. I'd feel really bad about my terrible record in closer management, but none of this is anything new. Ron Chandler has written in the past about high failure rates of closers, and this year is no exception. Of the 30 closers coming out of spring training, 12 have already lost the job. Two more seem to be teetering. Latroy Hawkins is now striking out less than four batters per nine innings for Colorado, although he is 14 for 15 in save chances. Joe Nathan of the Tigers is sporting an ERA well north of six and a whip over 1.5, despite a 17 for 22 saves record. Two more closers have already missed part of the season, Jansen and Reds fireballer Aroldis Chapman, who you remember took a batted ball in the face during spring training and missed about seven weeks of the regular season. So the question is, how do we manage the risk of rostering players like this, paying $10 or more in mixed shallow leagues, and often double that in deep only leagues, when the attrition and failure rate is basically 50%? 50%, that's the definition of a coin flip. The easy answer, and one we've all seen and heard dozens of times, is you've got to invest in the sure thing. But there is no sure thing. 
From 2009 through 12, there were 64 pitcher seasons of 30-plus saves. But 44 of those 30-save pitchers did not get 30-plus saves the next year. 18 more pitchers had 30-plus last year, and we can already rule out seven of them from repeating. Jansen won't make it, and neither will Ernesto Frieri, Edward Muhaka, Grant Balfour, Jason Grilly, Johnson, of course, and Kevin Gregg. There is no sure thing. Chapman was a sure thing until he got beaned. Johnson was a sure thing until he stank. Sergio Romo looked like a sure thing until he couldn't find the plate. And so it goes. Enron was a sure thing, remember? The truth is, closers are all gambles, every last one. There is no right way to play them. Maybe all we can do is make a very basic decision. You pays your money and you takes your chances, or you gets out of the game. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. I'm a member of the Masternodes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternodes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternodes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for the 4th of July. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 48 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd correspondent was Todd Zola. And our HQ Matchups commentator was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. But more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in four days with our Baseball HQ Roundtable Mid-Season Awards Show. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.